This is Han Solo, and you're listening to Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. I don't know. Fly casual. What is going on, everyone? And welcome to a brand new episode of Octo Radio, a Star Wars podcast. But here, broadcasting from a different island. I think instead of broadcasting from Octo, this time we're broadcasting from New Asgard because we're going to do something a little bit different, a little special, where we're going to be crossing into the world of Marvel, particularly the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not to start with the comparisons. Don't get afraid. That's not what we're doing. But it is going to be a Thor Love and Thunder meets Star Wars type episode. Love, Thunder, and the Force. Love, Thunder, and Star Wars. What are the connections between these two films outside of the man himself, Taika Waititi, who will also be a huge focus of the conversation? Now, in this, there's been a lead up for me personally thinking about movies that just feel like Star Wars movies. Our friend Alex Damon at Star Wars Explained did a great video about Top Gun Maverick, where he pointed out a lot of the parallels down to the fact that there's a trench run in the movie, like all the stuff that feels that way. Uh, David Lowry's The Green Knight. He literally cited the Battle for Endor as an influence on part of that movie. So it's been permeating the pop culture space. That feels like Star Wars. And I felt that way with Love and Thunder and I needed someone that I knew felt that way too, not just for affirmation, but somebody that could actually explore this on every level, mythical, thematic, and I guess the Guns N' Roses level two. <laughs> and that is uh, the creator of the Obsessed podcast, host of Obsessed, as well as uh, one of the creators and hosts of the Force Center podcast feed, the author of Comedy of Doom, playwright, director, friend, Joseph Scripture. Thank you for all the wonderful nouns. Those are all great nouns. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, you can go more specific. Human, you know, man, <laughs> yeah. uh, a sentient being. Yeah. yeah. How specific do you want to get? Uh, a potential Asgardian demigod, if you want to yeah. reveal that now. Scrawny, parts of body still scrawny. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Surviving. Thriving, possibly, <laughs> but definitely <Yes>. surviving. <laughs> Um, so yeah, Thor Love and Thunder, Joseph, an interesting time where it sort of felt, I would argue, as our opening point, like Marvel Phase 4 got weirder and got more experimental. And I think it was an interesting thing if people wanted that and they asked for it. And then when it actually happened, because phases one through three, it was like, we love this, it all built to endgame and uh, too far from home, but sameness was thrown around a lot. Then they got really bold. And all of a sudden we saw that sometimes people maybe didn't expect the different flavors and tones. But I think you and I have responded well to phase four. You've covered a lot of it with Sarah on Obsessed, um, some of the different installments and shows. Where are you at right now with Love and Thunder and the weird moment that it feels like where as a film, maybe it became too much of itself as a director. <laughs> maybe Taika became, did he cross from being an indie band that felt very precious to being mainstream and therefore scrutiny was higher? What's your overall assessment? Of the, of my, my personal opinion, the reaction kind of, kind of yeah, just picture. sort of both your journey. My journey. Yeah, no, I, I totally understand uh, people who struggle with it because I think it is a, a, a weird film and I think it's meant to be a weird film and it's got the tonal mix and, and we can talk in, in, in more details uh, about that. But I really love the film partially because it's got the tonal mix. I like the extremes and I think Taika Waititi, it's not to me like he's just like, oh, I forgot tones. I think it's <laughs> a choice an absolute choice to mix a film that is kind of about deadly serious things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, loss being children being abandoned by their, their parents, all sorts of 
really heavy things. Uh, you know, the actual human C word, <laughs> cancer that we have to deal with in real world, mm. uh, mixed with this comedy that's really meant, I think, ultimately to be joyful and to be an, an answer and an antidote in real life to all of the very heavy topics. So I always like things that uh, feel like there's uh, four legs, but one of the legs is shorter and this is wobbling. Uh, I like that in art. It makes it feel human to me. It makes it feel like people are taking a risk and, and mm. putting their soul on screen. So uh, on one side, like I get it. I do think it's a little wobbly as a film. I personally like that. And then on the much more, this is a compliment. I think it, the tonal combination is entirely intentional and one of the things that makes the film beautiful to me. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement about the embracing of the wobbly leg uh, as a concept, <laughs> like this idea that I love it for its imperfections as well. I feel like, you know, there, there's a much larger conversation and a five hour podcast that we could have uh, on, on a different day about when did we stop appreciating the wobbly leg? You know, you go back to your the fantasies of old, your princess brides, your willows, hook, different things like that. For me, Hook is a fantasy of old. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned I mentioned Hook the other day to mutual friends Ken and Mark Ellis, and they both were like, oh, he's a Hook generation kid. Yeah. What year did Hook come out? Hook is like 91 or 92, okay. I want to say. I feel like it was 91, and I knew this would come up in our conversation mm -hmm. because the, yeah. the deepest and best uh, Guns N' Roses cut used in the film uh, was released on September 17th, 1991. So mm. right there with Hook. <laughs> yeah, see, see, this is this was so fortuitous. This is this is this was it. This is the force in motion. Yeah, yeah, and and all of that stuff we can look back at and we, we can appreciate sort of a schlock um and sort of a, a goofier, more irreverent element, but also take those things deadly serious. I always loved Ridley Scott's legend and like the way that Tim Curry's character is in that, but also how silly it is. And you have someone like Gore the God Butcher who is a character that I've loved in the comics. It's one of my favorite storylines. And the way that they adapted him here, like it's it it is the movie that has the one weapon is jealous, like a jealous <laughs> ex of another weapon, but it is also the film of this father feeling just this palpable wrath against God itself, God themselves for the loss of his people, of his daughter. It opens so heavy, and it is all of those things. And throughout that bringing it all in with the Star Wars. I was having this moment while watching it and while rewatching it where I thought, I don't feel, and part of this is reactionary because, you know, we're in the internet space. People immediately had their, eh, should Taika be doing Star Wars? Because that, that one was kind of sloppy. <laughs> it wasn't as tight as Ragnarok. Should he still be doing Star Wars? And I felt this feeling of, no, this is the endorsement. This feels to <laughs> me more like he should be doing Star Wars because Star Wars should be, to me, especially as a Return of the Jedi, you know, that's my favorite. <laughs> like Star Wars should be Ewoks banging drums. It should be size noodles singing, but it should also be, you know, tell your sister you were right. All those things can coexist. <laughs> and I think Love and Thunder is very much in the Return of the Jedi animated Star Wars book of Boba Fett. It feels like it fits all of that. Of course, Taika worked on Mandalorian. And a lot of this is going to connect to a larger conversation that you can actually go back to an earlier episode of Arctic Radio, Joseph's first appearance on the show, where we talked about the comedy of Star Wars. So let's revisit that a little bit here. <laughs> the easiest way to express this is your mileage may vary. But you, sir, being a comedian, being somebody who studied the art, knows the theory, knows the history, 
It's been a little bit since we did that episode. Have mm. your feelings changed at all? Have you noticed anything recently that maybe presents a, a more fertile landscape for a creative like Taika? Or maybe we are witnessing, especially in the wake of Andor clashing with other things, <laughs> or people trying to make them clash um, with their with bad faith comparison. Are, are you thinking maybe it's the wrong time? Uh, I think it is not fertile ground for the comedy in Star Wars and Marvel discussion. I think it is rocky, barren, dangerous times. <laughs> uh, I think comedy is absolutely always subjective, and that's fine and, and great, obviously. Um, but I think that we're at a time where the MCU has really used comedy as a secret weapon, and I think it is not secret anymore. Hmm. There's a very specific style of comedy to to the humor in in the MCU, which to me is about the combination or the contrast between the epic and the mythic with the everyday in real life. And, and that is, as you know, Alden, just an, an adaptation of the comics. That's what was revolutionary about Spider-Man is he wasn't, you know, a god from another planet or a, a, a rich orphan who has become the bat. He wasn't mythic. He got bit by a spider because of science and he watched television that was on in the 60s and he talked about <laughs> it, you know. But that style has, has you know, really been brought forward uh, of that that's where a lot of the comedy is from in Marvel. And I don't think it's good or bad or otherwise, but I think people are kind of on to it, right? They're kind of on to like, yep, they, we, we've got a sorcerer in, in like Wong, uh, but he listens to pop music. Got it. Got it. And I think that in some ways is is Taika's favorite kind of humor. Not that he doesn't have others, but the contrast between the epic and the mythic in the mundane in, in the real world. Mm. And I think he deploys it in uh, uh, Love and Thunder in, in, in beautiful and meaningful ways, right? Of Thor is a god. Uh, everybody that uh, that Gore is mad at are, are god figures, parent figures. They have these mighty powers, but they also have all of the weaknesses and the foibles mm. and the realities of being human. So there's a depth to it. There's a thing that I love about it. But right on the surface, I think there's something familiar about it in this moment. And I think we're in a moment in Marvel and Star Wars where a lot of people are just craving different and new. And like you said at the top, sometimes they're like happy, like that different and new is exactly what I wanted right now. And they're like, no, that's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's kind of how I see some of the, the comedy stakes playing out specifically with with Taika, with the overlap with Star Wars, with Star Wars in specific I, to, to very quickly review our previous conversation. I think Star Wars has always just had a weird and challenging relationship with humor because Star Wars mm. has always had humor, some of it subtle and and wry, mm. uh, some of it stemming out of like deep personal revealing moments but a lot of it just really broad and fun a lot of it in, uh, intended honestly for a younger audience who hasn't mm -hmm. seen slapstick or heard kind of just straightforward you know this isn't my day jokes <laughs> yeah that's a lot of the the humor of star wars it's very broad and people in general in my opinion across generations grow up with it love it then as they get older and more interested in darker ideas, more tortured ideas, the action, the power, they forget it's there. And then when new Star Wars comes out, they resent the silly parts, brought the broad humor mm -hmm. of Star Wars. And that that cycle happened with the original trilogy, seen it happen with, you know, uh, kids who grew up with the prequel trilogy that's got a ton of broad humor designed for young people and then are, are you know, dislike much less broad jokes <laughs> in the sequel trilogy. And yeah. then to compound that, we are in the season of Andor, which I absolutely love. I want a Star Wars buffet. I want a lot of different dishes. Andor is very extreme where where 
even the funny things are really, really dark and real. So I think that that puts uh, comedy and Star Wars in a place where it's going to hit extra scrutiny. Final thing I'll say just about comedy. It's a thing that I've wrestled with my entire life and career because of my career and because of my tastes. Mm. Uh, Sometimes if you introduce comedy at all to anything, Mm. not everyone, but many people sort of perceive it as like an invasive species. (laughs) If there's one bit of comedy, then the whole thing is comedy. It's like if you're looking at a pristine lawn and it's got one weed, the entire lawn is weeds in people's minds. Mm. And I saw a lot of that with Thor and Love and Thunder when it first, uh, Thor and Love and Thunder, Thor Love and Thunder when it first came out, that there were people who really disliked it, really mad at it, really disappointed in it. And I'd start reading these social media posts where, come on, people, Thor Love and Thunder is pretty good. You just got to go in with the right mindset. It's just a silly romp. And it would be one of those, like, I'm nodding along in, in agreeing. And then I went off track with social media posts. And like, I was thinking about that when I rewatched the film for this. And like, every scene with gore is brutal and horrible and real. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that the comedy isn't real. I think it is. But it, it was just a, a super reminder to me when I sat down and rewatched it. And it just, it starts with Gore's daughter dying of starvation and dehydration. And people are like, yeah, it's just sit back and laugh. It's just a comedy because yeah. there's a lot of comedy. That means the entire thing is comedy. And that's just always a challenge. Some people feel that way. And how do you, you know, you just have to accept that and and know that if you make work like Taika Waititi does, that values a mixture of hard, painful drama and comedy and and love smashing them up moment to moment. You're going to have a a big section that says it's got to be one or the other. It's got to be drama or comedy. It can't be both. Yeah. And I think that that. First of all, you're giving me flashbacks to the great 2017 Get Out Golden Globes musical comedy controversy (laughs) of where do we put this horror thing that also made us laugh? We don't have it. The industry is not prepared for that. We Um, need boxes, boxes everywhere. Yeah, uh, it's musical comedy and other cinema. Yeah, it's just a very weird thing. And I think you're right that comedy being such a powerful element that it can be powerfully perceived either way. With Ragnarok, it was sort of maybe not the notch down in quality, but it was Taika introducing himself to that mainstream level. And then Love and Thunder was, I earned your confidence. Now here we go. I'm going to crank this to 11. It's going to be the full on unadulterated version of what I would have done maybe with a Ragnarok had I already been the established name because we're witnessing somebody not finding their voice. He's been around. He's been an artist. He's been many different kinds of things, a playwright, a painter, an actor. He's got all different kinds of projects. Mm-hmm some of which we'll talk about. And he he comes from that very particular New Zealand type of comedy that has only grown in popularity worldwide because of things like what we do in the shadows, because of his collaborations with like Reese Darby and with Jermaine Clement and the way that that's all expanded out. But I think that people almost don't realize that the relationship is just that, that it is a relationship, that there is no, uh, it's not pass fail. There is no sort of, (laughs) we're in this phase now, therefore it must be this, not phase of Marvel, but phase of just like the culture. And they don't realize how in relationship Marvel and Star Wars sort of have been Mm -hmm. because that Marvel comedy that you're discussing uh, so beautifully, this contrast between mythic and larger than life, but then also like old school Stanley, Steve Ditko, <laughs> Kirby, I got to pay my bills. I'm I'm considered a freak. I have all these things. A lot of people have simplified that down to the 
MCU criticism of, well, that just happened type Mm -hmm. comedy. You hear that a lot. All MCU films, every joke is, well, that just happened. And it's like, well, but but why? Where did that come from? And you get creators like controversial as he may be now as a a human, the sort of the Joss Whedon renaissance of TV. Mm -hmm. And Joss Whedon's a Star Wars kid. And Mm. James Gunn is a Star Wars kid and Tyke is a Star Wars kid. And it's like Han Solo's we're fine here. How are you is informed by George on 60s and 50s comics. And then that informs these 90s and 2000s guys. And that informs now (laughs) it's always been this dance. And I feel like when Taika got that that taste, that crack at Star Wars with Mandalorian Chapter 8, and you get the biker scouts, and they're having this conversation, and it's going back and forth, I feel like that was sort of an indication maybe of what the blend would be. Mm-hmm. And so I guess while we're rounding out sort of this, this overall opening <laughs> of how they connect, touching on that, where do you feel is... Or is there a line between something like Eleven and Thunder and something like the way he approached Mandalorian, which has biker scouts doing a workplace sort of bit while they're waiting around, but then is also the payoff of so many things? Is it just about understanding the assignment? Yeah, no, I think I think the, the difference for me between that style of humor and, and I agree with you, the um, the biker scouts opening of his uh, Mandalorian episode is the, you know, biker scouts as, you know, the dudes from clerks. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I often describe that as the best iteration of a joke that I'm done with. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because for yeah. me personally, I just like, yeah, the, the stormtroopers can't hit anything joke is, is really, really funny. But you know, it, I, I just am personally, yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. We've, we've covered that over the decades, but it's such an amazing iteration of it. I think the challenge is the Marvel characters exist in our world and they always have in the comics and in the MCU. Mm-hmm. So they have a wealth of real life things uh, uh, to play from. You know, Doctor Strange can suddenly make a Beyonce reference, right? The strain in Star Wars is uh, how much do people want the real world in Star Wars? I feel like in general, m- my you know measurement is that I think a lot of fans have relaxed on that. But it used to be a large part of the Star Wars conversation of Star Wars is uh, you know, uh, it's space fantasy. It's mm. to escape into this other bizarre world. You know, go back to the mood of the like original teaser trailer of, you know, a million beings from a billion worlds. Some of this may be happening far away. It's otherworldly. Uh, that was some of the, the prequel pushback of like, I want to think about did Han Solo ever hire an accountant for his taxes? Get out of here with that. I don't want the real world stuff. So a, a kind of comedy that contrasts the epic, the fantastic, the far away the mystical with the everyday in Star Wars to me has the challenge of how do you stop that from piercing the the great fantasy bubble hmm. of being in a different place and how do you create you know sort of reference points you know it's, I, I, mo- I love most Star Wars publishing but sometimes there's the, like a, there'll be Star Wars books that just kind of throw like a shadow in front of or dagger in front of every animal so they can be like it's stuck up on us like a shadow rat <laughs> <laughs> it dove like a dagger mouse, you know, and like that kind of thing of like where you can feel the creators being like, I just want to make this real world reference, but it's got to be Star Wars. So I'll just stick a cool word in front of a noun we know from Earth. 
Like, mm. I think that's the challenge of of his style of humor in Star Wars. I think that's a great point. I mean, is, it, that's that's what hollow net is. Right. And we mm-hmm. we accepted that one. Oh, it's not the Internet. It's the hollow net and the photos. I mean, you go to Galaxy's Edge. They're not photos. They're scans. <laughs> um, it's it's like it. even we've become a little bit a part of that. And we have, again, that mileage may vary. You talked about the progression and how sometimes that bubble can be pierced. I adore the sequel trilogy top to bottom love those films i still years later brush up against boyfriend cute boyfriend and i don't Mm. know why i don't know why it's just one of my ones i'm so curious about that is it the word boyfriend or is it the sort of real world conversational tone in which it's used boyfriend it's one thing to say do you have a boyfriend yeah it's another thing that you have a boyfriend a cute boyfriend it's got such a a real world uh, dating anxiety uh tone to it is it is it the tone or the word i think it's i think it's the word choice i think if, if he had i'm not you know, presuming to be able to write the scene better i mean i'm not larry kasdan um, <laughs> and JJ, but but i think that the idea of him anxiously asking if she had a romantic partner does not bother me especially because that's the first friend he's ever made mm-hmm. and based on you know, the first order, like probably the first conversation he's had that wasn't work related and who knows how long. So I don't have an issue with that. I think it is that the word boyfriend is something that I say and Mm. I'm and and but I also acknowledge how how arbitrary and how loose and blurry that line is, because I also say big ass. Uh, so it was, it was, oh, it was a big ass piece of pizza. Like, you know, like, and big ass door ends up yep. in, in the next film. So, and that did not bother me. The point of Hux, you know, we talked about that in our first comedy episode. Again, I encourage people to go back to that one. Still pretty evergreen. Uh, our Obi-Wan episode, not as evergreen because there was no <laughs> Obi-Wan show when we talked about him. Uh, but the, the idea of that Hux one, I mean, that is, you know, that's Ryan Johnson's version, but in something like Jojo Rabbit, which I know you haven't seen, so we're not going to spoil not. too much of Jojo, but all over the trailers, all over the marketing, all over what it is. It's, can you take the piss out of Adolf Hitler? The immense task that is and how some people, and rightfully so, that is completely within their right, say that should not even be attempted. Mm. And I think the film's brilliant. I think it deserved its screenplay Oscar. It, it moved me to tears and to belly laughs. I think it's a really, really great encapsulation of, of his artistry. Um, but that sort of the Hux approach was similar in as much as we saw this guy genocide about five or six planets in the previous film. Now he's the joke. But then we get into those conversations about, well, yes, he is the joke. They know mm-hmm. that. That's a feature, not a bug. And I think that becomes sort of the interesting conversation with Taika. And so all that to say, now that we've sort of explored a little <laughs> bit of this opening, and please, if you have anything else, let me know before we move into specifics on Love and Thunder. But the reason why we're having this conversation is because of all of this and because it was a unique case study. And it, it is a unique time right now where we had never really had an upcoming Star Wars filmmaker that we knew was going to do one that is writing one. He's writing it right now with Christy Wilson Carnes, who wrote 1917 and Last Night in Soho. And to get a blockbuster from that person almost immediately right there. Like Ryan Johnson had Looper, but we knew that, well, that wasn't going to be Star Wars. Like no one in 1980, what the conversations didn't exist. Like, oh, better check out that last Irvin Kirshner release to see if he fits this. Like (laughs) this is such a particular thing of who's directing the next Star Wars. Oh, he's got a massive movie right here. Let's explore that. (laughs) So Love and Thunder as a Star Wars movie. Love obviously, um, choices, corruption, 
road to hell, good intentions, all that classic stuff. Um, the idea of reconciling with your pain, the, the idea of choosing family, the idea of letting go, the idea of adoptive family. There is not a single beat in this <laughs> that I was not sitting there in the theater saying, oh yeah, no, this is this is proof of concept. So dive in, let's open it up. Joseph, this movie <laughs> as a Star Wars movie, as for us, again, our opinion, why we're excited about a Taika Star Wars. And let's let us know if Taika Star Wars is canceled like a week after this comes out. This was all just theoretical and fun anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, a, it's absolutely an interesting conversation, regardless of when we get another announcement. And, you know, if if Star Wars films are ever canceled or if they're simply postponed <laughs> <laughs> until the heat death of the universe. Uh, Star Wars films are never late or they're never early. They arrive precisely when they mean to. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I think uh, for me, I think that there's some of that, that tonal stuff we were talking about of, uh, that relates it to me to Star Wars of a, a deep love of life and wanting to find joy. I think that's where the the the, the desire in Star Wars from Lucas to to deal with these really heart wrenching and serious themes about, you know, anger and death and tyranny in mm. fascism that that's clearly what he's interested in. But he also just still wants it to be like, not just show you what we need to fight, but what are we fighting for? Mm. It's for joy and family and connection. And then so you want that in the film, right? So just the fact that the film is constructed to say we have to have if what this film is arguing for is here's a list of of the, the dark things that are going to drag us down and destroy us. Mm. Here's the responsibility that we have as parents, as people with power to help others, to guide others so that we can have what <laughs> mm. family, love, connection, celebration. The root word of comedy is comos. It translates literally to celebration. So I feel like just that, like, what what do I want this film to move like? What do I want to, to feel like is mm -hmm. Star Wars? Then you can get into the, like, just like the, if that's the content, do you like the delivery package, which is right. the structure, the pacing, the tone, the success of the individual jokes, but the intent in combining the deep drama and the really broad, really constant comedy feels like Star Wars to me. And then you get into all the, the them thematic stuff. And I, I agree with a, a ton of stuff that you listed off. Uh, some of the things that that really grabbed me and really moved me about Love and Thunder that reminded me of Star Wars is not just this whole sense of generational change, right? That the actual plot hinges mm -hmm. on Gore losing his daughter and, and reacting to that loss in anger and, and you know, a... a a dark sword that perverts his soul, which is, you know, a little Vader like um, <laughs> and, and then the actual, you know, mechanic of his vengeance is kidnapping the kids. And we have all, all the comedy scenes of Thor trying to be there for the kids and even being reminded that some of the kids parents are gone, uh, like mm -hmm. like Axel's uh, parent and Heimdall being gone. So there's the lit there's the, like the literal uh, parent children relationships in the film. Uh, there's the adoption at the end, spoiler, of Thor to Gore's resurrected daughter. But then the whole film begins with Gore's motivation is being abandoned by a god, mm -hmm. which to me makes you say like, OK, well, in the Marvel Universe, gods are just that's a name for really powerful next level characters. Right. But in our real world, in our in our depending on our real world beliefs or our investment in myth, gods are parents. They're parents of humanity. They're parents of 
the earth and the sky and the moon and the vast nothingness of space there, why things exist. Mm -hmm. So to me, the fact that this is a movie about mentor figures, parental figures, adults who have power like Thor does, uh, like Jane does. There's even a direct line of dialogue of like her incredible gifts of intelligence and science are powers that she has a responsibility to share. Mm -hmm. The, The film makes that explicitly clear. It's about the responsibility to share power, but it's also really about the dark side choice of of abandoning the people you should be caring about. That's what Zeus is about, right? Mm -hmm. He's abandoning everyone he loves. So there's those kind of Star Wars themes of not just generational change, but the responsibility that Luke has to Ben Solo, that mm-hmm. Obi-Wan had to Anakin, that Shmi had to Anakin, on and on and on. What And what happens when you lose a parent? Uh, Ray's need to be independently strong, but also to have belonging and connection to a family and standing mm-hmm. in front of Luke and saying, I need someone to show me my yeah. place. And Luke is wrong in that moment to not answer the call to use his knowledge, his power, to be a parental figure in that moment. So I really see Star Wars in all of that. And, and to me, I just feel like that's one of the things that really makes Thor Love and Thunder interesting and beautiful to ask ourselves, what are we talking about when we talk in, in storytelling about gods mm-hmm. and casting gods as parents who have abandoned their responsibility to their children? And in terms of the Star Wars of it all, if the force is our sort of God analog, and if it is, Mm. if it is this thing that presents itself, if Godhood for the Marvel purposes, as we see in uh, Omnipotent City, these different representations, you've even got something to the Wakandan gods, you've got their depiction of Dionysus is there, there's all types of different Easter egg gods and things and that one feet one, (laughs) even the Cronin ones there, Kor gets to see his own God sitting on a throne of scissors, which is hilarious. Um, that's just a visual gag where it's like, good for you, good for you, good for you just for trying that. Um, the entire idea of in the classic saying in, in charge versus taking care of those in your charge. And mm. there's so much that happens, particularly in various Star Wars downfalls about trust and being explicit in what it means to trust and how the vagueness and the and the the openness of that idea can frighten people and how insecurity can infect that and so you're telling someone like Anakin Skywalker we'll trust in the force we'll just trust in it we'll just trust in it and he's like but I need something to hold I need a human moment I need mm-hmm. something here and Gore being the one that was I do trust I do believe we are the last believers I believe he says to that god at the opening like we're your mm-hmm. most devout like we came all the way please and to be laughed off it's like at that moment he needed a touch of humanity he needed some sort of grace he needed something that acknowledged his plight as an individual and i think that sometimes the contrast between the majesty of the force and then also what some people just need especially you know you mentioned luke and kylo like that idea of that clash happening because of conversations that weren't had it wasn't the things said between them it was the things that weren't said and how it comes to a a mystical clash i looked into your mind with my powers and felt darkness and the powers that you would then have. But if we had had the human conversation, if we had had the familial conversation, perhaps it would not have gotten to that point. Gore has placed everything in the greater power and his link to humanity dies to start Mm -hmm. the film in the same way that you could say that 
a lot of these Star Wars heroes and villains have that link to humanity, even the ones that we don't know their full story. Maybe there was a time when someone like Ashiv Palpatine did have a parent or a sibling or someone that he cared about in his youth. We don't know that. But Star Wars is all about making that choice about your better instinct. And when you feel like something greater has let you down, then we see how it sets you on that path. I mean, Anakin was he deified the Jedi as gods, as a child in a certain way, as guardians. I, I hear no one can kill them. You know, mm-hmm. he says to Qui-Gon, like, they're and they're all powerful. When I, yeah. when I have this power, I can make everything right. Yeah, mm-hmm. I can protect. I can defend. I'll be able to make sure that my my wife's OK, that my unborn baby babies. He did not know it was babies <laughs> um, are going to be OK, that I can I can surpass Obi-Wan because he doesn't understand. I love him, but he doesn't get it. All of that isolation is here in Gore. And then it's also really present in Thor. He's not nearly as far gone. Obviously, he remains heroic throughout the film. But what he talks about, you know, for the brief stuff that the Guardians of the Galaxy are present for, Peter and Thor are talking about this idea of pain sometimes is the acknowledgement that at least you are feeling and Mm -hmm. that at least you are not too far gone. And that Star Wars, I think, is so much about that, like loss is so prevalent throughout all the stories, especially the loss of mentors or the loss of uh, loved ones, lovers, spouses, whatever it's going to be. There's going to be some spoilers for some other Star Wars things in here. So just be be, be careful. Like, you know, I wanted to say something, so I'll give a warning. And now I'm going to say it. You look at something like Rebels. It's like Kanan and Hera. They have this romance and then she loses him. And this is all building toward Thor getting over the loneliness and the regret over the Jane relationship, getting it back and then having to lose it in a different way, but a healthier way. And he's making the choices to process loss in a healthier way versus Gore. And I think that the film between the two of them, much like George, George is Star Wars and all Star Wars is, I think it's pro-belief. It's anti-dogma. And I think Love and Thunder is pro-belief, mm. but it's anti-dogma. It's it's saying, believe in something, if that's each other, if that's love. It's that the hope that you could be surprised with a rock boyfriend like Korg <laughs> at the end of the film, like something that can be there, the optimistic choice, the next opportunity that Thor in good faith affords Gore to die with some peace, knowing that love will get to make more choices, that she will have more of a life. Um, I think is also Star Wars, because at any point, Thor, especially within the context of his character, because these are sequelized things, much like Star Wars, like Thor says in Infinity War, when he really talks to Rocket Raccoon and says, like, I've been around for thousands of years, I've lost everyone, I've constantly had everything taken from me, he has as much of a reason to have lost his grip on a moral compass as Gore has. And there's a yeah. really interesting contrast there. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think that is one of the, I think almost every idea in, in Thor, Love and Thunder uh, is is Star Wars related. I don't know if I'll ever see two, two lightsabers owned by the same master being being jealous over uh, <laughs> uh, over <laughs> which one the, the Jedi likes the, the most, which is a, a great recurring Thor joke with uh, Mjolnir in, in Stormbreaker. But I, I think that fear of loss is the biggest one. I think that's one of the m- most, uh, you know, central ideas of Star Wars is the light side and the dark side in balance are natural. There is joy and celebration and birth and there is pain and loss and sadness. And it, a certain amount of it is natural. What's unnatural is when a dark sider is like, hey, that pain and loss and anger side is great. Let's like make that everything. Uh, <laughs> that's when the force is out of balance. Uh, but I think that desire, you know, there there's even like 
it for is kind of uh, zippy and, and fun especially to audiences in 1977 star wars was when it first came out there's there's bitter sweetness going on with obi-wan all the time about mm-hmm. eh, loss it's time to move on and i think that thor and love love and thunder is just drilled down on that idea of loss i think sometimes when when people say uh the film is messy Obviously, that's totally just uh, uh, everybody has a right to their opinion. But I also think they're responding to the tone into a little bit of the whiplash of going from the serious moment to the comic moment, because structurally and conceptually about what its themes are, it's rock solid, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, much like Korg's boyfriend, Dwayne, rock solid. Um, <laughs> the the lost thing is established right away. Gore experiences loss and the necro sword basically whispers to him like a sword version of Sheev. Cool. Get revenge. That's the only way to handle loss. Mm-hmm. Then we're introduced to Thor and immediately reminded of all of his losses. Halfway through the film, we're explicitly told in, in this um, great mythic storytelling way by by Korg that fear of losing one another is what ruined Thor and Jane's relationship in the first place. Mm-hmm. Jane is facing the loss of her own life that probably can't be changed. So I feel like it is just really centralizing the idea of loss and then moving immediately to, and how do you choose to deal with that? Do you give in? to anger and fear, or do you try to reinvest in taking a risk of connection? Uh, Do you try to recognize that this part of this phase of your life is over, but you can love this new one that's beginning? It presents lots of different ways to kind of handle loss. And I think one of the ones that makes Thor, Love and Thunder the most powerful to me is is Jane's part of that story. Because Thor Thor and Gore are just kind of almost explicitly... The Jedi Sith, right? They're yeah. they're Obi Wan and Maul in that ending where Thor's just like, I'm done fighting you, and I'm even done trying to convince you. The choice is yours, Gore. You can wish death on a bunch of gods you've never met, some of whom you have a legitimate grievance with, some of you have a legitimate point with. It's not going to fix anything or make anybody's life better, but you can just go murder them if that's what you want to do, or you could use your one wish for for life and love and connection and and bring your daughter back. And, and it's so Star Wars the way he's like. It's Obi-Wan and Luke and, and, and Ahsoka and all the best Jedi to me at mm-hmm. their best of like, it's not a fight. I'm just I'm totally centered with where I'm at. And I'm just telling you the truth. Yeah. You can make the awful choice or you can make the good choice. I'm going to go uh, hug my my dying partner. <laughs> he <laughs> you he know? might as well have stood up and thrown Mjolnir to the side like a lightsaber and, and said, no, I'm a lover. I'm a caregiver like yeah. Jane Foster before me. <laughs> like he he really yes. like has internalized her lessons. And I love that you brought her up, too, as they are this duality and they are this this dual exploration of this choice and she's somewhere in the middle where she's almost having yes a hero's journey and yes it's it's this this amazing return for natalie portman she does such a great job at the comedy and with with the tragedy and everything and taika you know he gets gets called often you know one of the masters of happy sad one of the you know, happy sad mm-hmm. being just a thing now and we're even seeing that in music like things like billy eilish or uh gracie abrams whose dad i think did some star wars one time um <laughs> she, you know her, her music is they're calling it sad girl pop and like that's such a, that's such a thing that is coming up now and becoming so prevalent and i think that the jane arc here it's like you you get scenes with her and like darcy and um who i love seeing again post wandavision i'm glad that that character has had 
you know, been embraced after so maybe stay being, in power. Yeah. yeah. After maybe, maybe disliked for a little while by some fans. Um, but the fact that life is that way, sometimes the fact that like that to me was realism. Did it feel like I've talked to friends and I'm like, did that feel jarring that the person that was dying was joking about it? It's like, yeah, that's, that happens. Um, Not and jarring to me. No, yeah. I mean, that's, it, that's, as we've talked about comedy is like a way to reclaim power mm-hmm. and, Mm-hmm. laughing at the reality that we're not all going to always be here. Obviously, there are inappropriate times to do it, but particularly when somebody's choosing it to do about their own mortal journey. Yeah, that's about, a reclamation of power about themselves. It's reclaiming power. It's her saying, I am still like she when she's getting her chemotherapy treatment and somebody's reading her book, The Foster Theory, right next to her. She's like, you know, I wrote that book like there's <laughs> there's still moments to embrace accomplishment and joy and pride and everything. And you're not defined by the ending. You're defined by the steps along the way. And that's why I almost feel like if Thor is X, Y, and Z Jedi and Gore is X, Y, and Z Sith, particularly Maul, which I think is probably the most uh, apt um, with how blinded and, and, and narrow-minded he's become. Jane is sort of this weird combination of a hero's journey and an old Ben Kenobi at the same time in this film. Yeah. She gets to that point at the end where she knows I could stay here. Thor can probably theoretically get through it without me. Maybe, but I'm going to go. I'm going to go do the sacrifice play. And I think that 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 to me, again, read as one of those. Wow, it's Obi-Wan. It's Kanan. It's even people that have survived their sacrifice plays, but we're still willing to make them like uh, Seer Junda and Fallen Order. She mm-hmm. does it. You, she survived. But people that are willing to say, I'm going to dive in. I mean, that's Han Solo at Yavin. He could have gotten mm-hmm. blown out of the sky it's, when he came it's back. It's Han Solo when he actually dies, right? Saying this is what's most important to me, reaching out for connection. Like it, Han, Han Solo is well aware that he's walking out on a railless bridge uh, to an angry person with a laser sword, right? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think he's as you know zen about it as Obi Wan because that's not Han Solo's thing. But it's a, it's still a this is the most important to me, regardless of what happens next. Is that yeah. I, I try to do this, and I think that's what was really interesting to me uh, about. Natalie Portman's uh, uh, role, Jane Foster's role, the mighty Thor's role is Thor and, and Gore are both responding to, well, how do you handle loss? Uh, Gore says vengeance. Uh, Thor says, even if it hurts, try to connect, right? It's pretty explicit, his conversation with the Guardians of the Galaxy, that that whole running joke about it's better to feel shitty than nothing. That's like Thor's like, if it was a musical, that that's would be Thor's I want song. He would sing, I want to be shitty. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, the, trying... the Guardians are trying to leave. He won't let them leave. It's a, like a reluctant <laughs> chorus. Like they're all trying to sing and be like, goodbye. But yeah. Um, but th- so then I think I think Jane Foster's response to loss, in particular, the loss of her own life is, OK, I can accept that. But while I'm here, I want to make the choice to live life at its fullest. And I think that you can look at it as sacrifice because it certainly is a choice at the end to 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 risk her life to the cancer to pick up the hammer one more time. That's, uh, you know, that's laid out pretty clearly. But I think everything we know about her is that she's a person who likes to live life to the fullest. I, I think in that great scene where she's getting chemo and she's bored out of her mind, right? Because she's not a person who just sits that, that the person she's next to, she really wants him to understand wormholes. So she rips a page out of her own book and he's like, why did you destroy my book and poke a hole in it? And she's like, well, now you understand wormholes. That to me is like, that's a little scene of, of who she is. She would, Mm. she's not confined by putting everything in its right little place, everything 90 degree, you know, angles. She would rather risk destroying something to live, to feel like 
I achieved something vital and real in this moment, this connection with this guy. Mm. And then, you know, the hammer calls to her. She's looking for a way to live. She knows that the, it, it's not it's either hurting her or every time she changes back into a mortal form, she's not getting better with the cancer and she's accepting that loss. But she's she's getting to live life to her fullest. She's getting to be a, a hero and fly around and have all these adventures and see these amazing things. Hmm. Uh, so that's all about living your life to the fullest. And and I feel like for me, when Thor is off alone, I think pretty, pretty at risk of his life and at the children's lives. Right. Yeah. Uh, at the end, they all three of them with Valkyrie went up against Gore and, and they almost didn't make it out alive. So when Mjolnir shows up, I think you can read it as as a sacrifice choice of are you willing to do this one last thing? Is this what you want to choose to do with the last moment of your life? For sure. But there's also something to me, and this is just a total reading of the of the film. It's not explicit. The whole conceit of why Mjolnir goes to her is because Thor whispered all of his love of her into it. Mm -hmm. And I feel like with that, Mjolnir understands who she is. And it's not the hammer showing up going, "Uh, my old buddy Thor is going to die. So could you spend the rest of your life point saving him? I feel like it's Mjolnir showing up saying, I know you agreed to stay, but I also know you and you don't want to. I'm here to support you, the real you who wants to live life to its fullest and does not want to spend your final moments sitting it out. You want to go and do something important, experience something important, connect with the person you love. And that's that's what makes it really beautiful to me because it is a response to loss Mm -hmm. i can't stop she can't she can't be saved yeah but she's going to decide what the the final moments of her life are and it's going to be living life to the fullest that's why i go back to like the root of comedy being a celebration a joy you're like we're all going to die what do we want out of life we want we definitely want meaning we definitely want connection but we also just want joy and fun and to say I did that. <laughs> yeah, I went to the top of the Eiffel Tower. I had that experience. I did that. You know, whatever your experience is, you know, I saw Guns N' Roses live twice. I did that. You know, you want to go and experience life. Enjoy. Yeah. And I think, you know, twofold on all that. And, and well said, I'll give I, I will steal a force of well said <laughs> and throw it at you on this show. The, the twofold thing that I want to explore there, one is pretty blatant, which is Jane gets to the to the very non Sith place of I'm not going to cling. I'm not going to cling to this idea of life. I'm not going to give in to the Thor would search the cosmos and he would try to find the Asgardian medicine and he would try to figure things out and he would do everything and he's willing to do everything. Please stay. Please, let's figure this out. He's not at that place yet. And she's she's not interested in being you know, the extremes are not let go or be on a meat hook on Exegol. But there are, there are, you know, a lot of those in-betweens of, but what if I just did this? What if I just did this? And every choice then would get easier and she would be less of herself, which leads into what you're saying. It's about authenticity. I think so many of these Star Wars characters and in the characters in Love and Thunder are trying to be their fullest selves, even the ones that are more supporting Valkyrie, what kind of leader am I? What is the pressure here? Will I ever have time for this personal life? Will I ever have time for love? The conversation that she has with Gore, even in the brief stuff you get with the Guardians of the Galaxy, you get the the seeds being planted of Peter's sort of looking for more of the directionless stuff, which looks like it'll be followed up on now in the holiday special, which is going to be a riot, I'm sure. <laughs> um, and for Jane, it's what you're saying. It's about the fullest. It's about, am I going to go out a caregiver, am I going to go out being my fullest self? And and it makes me think of things like Din Djarin, like we, we know we're going to make the sacrifice. I know 
that I'm breaking the creed. I know how it's going to affect me going forward. I know how it's going to destroy my life up until this point, but I'm, I would be betraying the me that I am now. Um, I always go back to chapter three, Deborah Chow's uh, first episode of the sin. My armor's lost its integrity. I may need to begin again. <laughs> that moment is when is is birth. Like that got that's a new guy. And then he is fighting to preserve that new guy throughout the Mandalorian. And he gets to obviously the ultimate point that we see him in and the rescue and in the book of Boba Fett. And I think that Jane as mighty Thor is like, this is this is me. I am a protector, I'm a caregiver, I'm a scientist, I'm all these things. I'm I've always been putting the world first, and now I really can. And I I love this version. She feels good. She has a swagger. She has this friendship with Valkyrie and that moment where she's by the sink and she smashes it because she's angry that she can't have both, but she chooses optimism and chooses to be herself, even at great personal cost. And the responsibility of using power, which is huge yeah. in Star Wars, right? You know, yeah. sometimes when our when our heroes run away or fail, you know, the moment of discovery and reconnection is no, if you have power, you absolutely should use it to help people and empower other people. And that, that's going on with Jane as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's going on with Jane. I mean, it, it, not to date this one too much, although who knows when the Taika movie will happen. So it's <laughs> like, who cares at this point? Uh, it, 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 it's still relevant. You can all go back and watch Andor. At the time of this recording, Andor is having those moments too. He doesn't have great right. force power. He doesn't have mythic abilities. He's not a swordsman that we know of. Uh, he doesn't have, you know, I'm sure he could probably handle himself with a vibrator blade, but <laughs> the, he, 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 he's, he, but he's realizing like, oh, I do have these leadership abilities. I do have these, uh, uh, these keen observational uh, talents. I do have have this detail-oriented nature. I could be making things better for the people around me, and I have to. And on top of all of that, your point about Mjolnir, it's imbued with love. I thought that was such a clever thing because it's something that I, I'm sure a, a really, really heavy Marvel comics like read all the Lee, all the Walt Simonson, all that everyone could probably find a story to refute me. But I don't think that's ever been explored that is it just Odin that can enchant Mjolnir or is it also Odin's children? And I thought that Thor doing it accidentally in the past, mm -hmm. just in a hot dog costume, <laughs> just in a hot dog costume, having imbued it with love. This object now with its mythic sort of pseudo sentience, um, sentient enough to be jealous and sentient enough to be loyal uh, on both ends of the, of the two weapons, knows the quality of your character in the same way that the Skywalker saber gains that same sentience by the time of episode seven, by the time mm -hmm. of Force Awakens. Maybe if things had gone differently, that Skywalker saber would have been like, yes, of course, Ben's my guy. Give me to Ben. But by the time of Force Awakens, it's saying, I need you. Yeah, and I need you. Even yeah. if you don't get that, I've been sitting here in this chest in this Maz's castle, <laughs> and, and I know that a hero has to rise. I mean, even Snoke says that like it's mm -hmm. not, he doesn't stop to monologue about the specifics like a like a visual dictionary. Um, <laughs> but he says, as I, I warned you that as darkness rose, your equal in the light would rise to meet it. I'm paraphrasing. But yeah. that entire idea of sometimes the greater plan, the belief in something, maybe not an individual, um, will push you toward the right choice will push you toward the opportunity to make the right choice. Yeah. It's always the opportunities. It's always the the crossroads. And, you know, someone like Zeus is there to present yet another opportunity, uh, yet another type. If we have your Thor, Gore, and Jane, Zeus, while being more of a supporting and, and, and you know, minor role, he's only got a couple of big scenes. He has all of the power and has chosen 
apathy. Zeus is much like DJ and Last Jedi. He's think, the guy that's it's negligence. It's yeah. I mean, I yeah. think there's even even fear in it. I mean, I think there's yeah. fear in, in DJ, but he's uh, he got enough uh, uh, swagger and uh, savvy to present it is mm-hmm. cool. Uh, both sides do it, guy. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's probably fear and cowardice. But that's so clear in Star Wars storytelling, right? That what uh, motivates uh, Darksiders claim it's anger. Um, you know, Sidious understands that fear is where it begins, uh, but it's fear. I mean, it'd be one thing if like, hey, there's this really unfortunate people and they're calling out for help and Thor goes to Zeus and says, hey, Zeus, could you could you and the rest of the gods please help? And they're like, nah, maybe that would be just apathy to me. But I think what's extra powerful and extra Star Wars that it's fear. We're mm. safe. Here. There's a god killer in a necrosword that can kill us or maybe even hurt us. We're going to stay here and have orgies. We we can't even deal with, we cannot be mm. anywhere near even remotely as strong as Jane Foster and mm-hmm. deal with the even the concept of losing our lives. That's We're, a great point. They're terrified. He's a little fear baby. <laughs> that is an excellent point. I love that you touched on that. It really is. It's he might be an apathetic person, but what is that next level? Like that stuff about omnipotent city, that stuff about, yeah, he killed some lesser gods, but like they're not here. That's not the problem. This is a fortress. This is this is all of us. This idea of Ragnarok is so much about colonization and and historical erasure Mm -hmm. this one is expanding on those ideas in its own ways um which and also star wars has begun to touch on that as well with andor being an immigrant story and with rose tico's story and page tico the story of what happened to their homeworld that's been there too and continues to grow in those ways but with ragnarok teeing it up and then now we get the the isolationist Zeus, the Mm -hmm. one who's like (laughs) oh togetherness we could band together and defeat this evil Nah, nah, that doesn't sound like a good plan, which is so anti what Shmi Skywalker sets up, what the citizens fleet pays off. This is not me saying you have to like Rise like Joseph and I do. It's just <laughs> it's just there. It's um, just there. Yeah. So it's it's that interesting thing of Zeus while being comedic and I just like this while we're talking about it, just hats off to everybody for just like being funny. Like these are yeah. all very different kinds of actors and Natalie's not a comedy actress usually. And Russell Crowe is not a comedy actor usually. And I think they brought it and they, they did a great job. They made me laugh. I enjoyed them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the secret to comedy, especially filmed comedy is the, it just play your character's truth and the writer and the director knows how to tease the comedy out of it. Just mm-hmm. play it true and it will be funny in the right context, right? Yeah. And then uh, in that post credit scene, this isolationist guy who was on high, who had the power, who literally had the power to the point where it is his physical weapon that can battle gore. Mm-hmm. It is it is the lightning bolt of Olympus, of Zeus. That is this thing that gets carried and passed down. What does he choose in the after credit scene? more vengeance like Mm -hmm. the cycle of violence is going to keep going on and if there's a thor 5 it seems like brett goldstein's hercules is going to be the (laughs) the the fist of vengeance at that point not the fist of vengeance as seen in moon knight that would be the (laughs) the literal fist of vengeance uh of khonshu a a god who was not present and probably would have signed off on killing gore um oh yeah and it's a great contrast too of like zeus doesn't he doesn't learn right he doesn't change he's had his 
power doubted. So he is going to, in response to to uh, being asked to share his power or having his weakness exposed, he is going to uh, bring the hammer down. The hammer, this time being Hercules himself. Uh, and that's such a contrast to everything that's going on in the rest of the film, because it is it doesn't end up being just about the parents, the mentors, the adults, the people with power have a responsibility to protect the children, the next generation. Mm-hmm. They have a responsibility to empower the children, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's such a powerful moment when it, it's a great mix of the drama and the comedy slapping together in, in a way that might not work for some people, but Thor sharing the power with the children, right? And for like, a limited time mo- only. <laughs> for a limited time only. It was funny. Uh, one of the most, you know, comedic, but also triumphant moments is the, the girl who's just a blaring power out of her stuffed animal, right? Yeah. Um, so it's this, it's a real contrast between Thor and Zeus. And I, I wanted to throw this in here because I want to be sure to share this with my, my Guns N' Roses love. Oh, please. Um, clearly the film is just like, it, we're all in on Guns N' Roses. The, the Heimdall's son changing his name to Axel, wearing a Use Your Illusion 1 uh, t-shirt, uh, the better album, in my opinion. And then using, you know, the three big hits of Welcome Jungle, Sweet Child in Paradise City. But then using that thematically appropriate coda to November Rain mm-hmm. uh, with the thematically on the spot lyrics of don't you think that you need somebody? Don't you think that you need someone? Everybody needs somebody. You're not the only one. You're not the only one. Right. And it's like at the end, somebody needs to play the coda of November Rain to Zeus because he is doing the opposite of everything that was just presented as heroic. He is, and he's, and he's failed. It's, it's not a coincidence that you have the, you know, Axel's lost his father. He's looking now to Thor. Odin passed away in Ragnarok. And now Zeus is Thor's hero. He establishes, like, I've always looked up to him. He's the greatest. I can't wait to meet him. I can't wait to talk to him. I know he'll back us up. He's deferring to the next father figure up who disappoints him and breaks the cycle. And Thor can be to these children what was not given to him by Zeus in this film. And quite frankly, by Odin a couple times. Uh, Odin. Oh, yeah. Qu- questionable throughout. Ended strong. <laughs> Ended strong with his with his two sons. But yeah, uh, definitely still yeah. like, oh, by the way, here comes your sister. Oh, good night. I'm dead. Like he was not the, the strongest figure. And Thor is able to correct cycles of generational trauma, which is so Star Wars that it's like everything. <laughs> the idea that I mean, even again, even Andor, the least pulpy and the least fantastical is still Marva to Andor. It's still Cyril's mom to Cyril. It's Mm -hmm. still these communities, these fixtures passing down and Thor empowering those children, all their weapons and their stuffed animals and the teddy bear with the laser eyes and them all (laughs) charging while that music kicked in and the slash guitar is blaring. That was one of those moments in the theaters where I just felt like this is so pure Mm-hmm. that it may, it threw me back into a sense of optimism and it was a feeling that is such a rare thing to capture and also just such a directorially driven thing which i think you know as we move sort of into more in this conversation like about not not the backlash we don't need to unpack backlash mm-hmm. we're not going to read angry tweets or anything but like <laughs> this this idea that isn't that what should we should be encouraging multiverse of madness was also this year and i remember telling people look i understand if you think the movie is sloppy i understand if you have x criticisms that's your right but no one will ever be able to 
take away my joy at witnessing Stephen Strange possess a zombie, assemble a cloak made of damned spirits <laughs> as a shredding guitar from Danny Elfman kicked in. And then he flew off to a cursed mountain to punch a star hole in the universe with America Chavez and save the day because Wanda just needed to make a better choice. The only thing that could yep. defeat Wanda was Wanda saying, I've gone too far. That's the only thing that could beat her. And I think Love and Thunder has that here too, where it's Gore, I'm going to inflict upon you the optimism, energy, and togetherness of kids. I have now galvanized and empowered something that your daughter very well could have been a part of if it had been some other you. Mm -hmm. If some other, if someone else had gotten that necrosword, it could have been you that paid and your daughter would have been here. And, And he makes good on that in the end with Love and Thunder being this sort of like folkloric name for their team. Yeah, yeah. And that that for me, you know, everything we're talking about with the empowering kids, I think that is also very Star Wars because, yeah, there's a lot of explicit lines in in Thor Love and Thunder about meeting your heroes and being let down by your, Mm. your heroes. And I think the ultimate message of of love and thunder is don't just be inspired by your heroes become your heroes you know mm-hmm. thor's been through this he's he's been trained to to be the ruler he's been let down by his father and i love how quick he is but like ah it turns out zeus is a piece of crap okay i'll do it i'll take his power and i'll do it you know so thor's been through this before but i think it, the fact that the film empowers the kids it, it's not just that thor is watching over love you know gore's uh, resurrected daughter it's that they are a team now mm-hmm. and, and that's the thing that i've really appreciated about star wars storytelling that you know I, I still have debates with friends where they describe star wars as dynastic and and i understand it's it's the uh, you know skywalker saga and there's lots of lines of dialogue where it says we need only you you're the hero who can do x y and z mm-hmm. but you know from the beginning luke can't make the shot if han doesn't turn around even if Rogue One's never made. Luke doesn't make the shot unless somebody else steps up and becomes the hero. I love that Last Jedi really goes to a lot of effort to show that the physical abilities of the Jedi, the power makes a difference. Ray lifting those rocks to save the rest of the resistance. Mm -hmm. But the Jedi also matter as a symbol to inspire other people, right? I mean, Last Jedi in particular ending with uh, the kid, you know, raising uh, Tamiri Tamiri Black Black, Broom is it's not just that the kids charge at Gore's forces, um, by the way, which as Taika Waititi has revealed, all of Gore's dark monsters were designed by kids. Um, They were designed by his children and the children of different crew members on the film where his daughter had said to him while he was writing the screenplay, dad, what are you doing? He's like, well, I'm writing Thor battling monsters. And he says, can I draw a monster? And he said, that's actually brilliant. And so all of those monsters that oh, they fight are designed by children. That's um, great. And so that just adds to the, the 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 meta level of that theme. But it's not <laughs> just that they charge and fight. It's also that Stormbreaker flies back. Axel catches it and brings them home. Mm-hmm. He's become Thor. He's also taken that step up. And then he's training with Sif at the end. And he's become his father, right? He's stepped into his father Heimdall's shoes. Yeah. But call, calling the Bifrost down and shepherding them to safety, taking care of those in your charge. And. And the way that, you know, and you and I being such big Star Wars guys, we can get into the nitty gritty about the, the dynastic nature, which, again, would be another five hour podcast, because <laughs> I think I think our instinct sometimes, especially with like Star Wars conversations just out in the world is like, well, the 
Skywalkers are the exception, not the rule. Like, <laughs> don't forget that. Don't forget yep. that. Don't, don't forget there, there's the no actual. Yeah. There's no. There's no Fisto legacy. There's no Mundi <laughs> legacy. There's no Windu legacy. Like, let's remember yeah. that. Um, they are one story. They are one sixty-year period and thousands. That was important. But sometime, someday we'll meet a bartender sibling Kenobi just schlepping around the galaxy this entire time, hearing yeah. about his brother on Hollow News every once in a while. Or, or he'll have a conversation with some kid at his bar and be like, "I think I had an older brother." I don't remember though. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting thing though to see sort of how they are able to become their fullest selves even through loss again even these minor roles the way that they fill things out sif and a star wars tradition i mean it was intentional in phase two because kevin Feige mm-hmm. is such a star wars fan phase two of marvel there's a hand removal and everything as a star wars tribute and ant-man even uses the tie fighter sound effect for uh yellow jackets laser blasts so oh, like wow that's all very intentional phase two was the empire tribute but even here sif loses this arm but at the end she has become now, okay, you're not the active warrior anymore. You're the mentor. Mm-hmm. Valkyrie was the warrior in Ragnarok. Now you're the king. And Jane, despite dying on the physical plane, ascends into Valhalla and goes very into Jedi like, right? Very Jedi like. It's it's not the end. And not to make this the let's let's both you and I be co-counsel for Rise. Um, although I am ready to at all times. Uh, it's the idea of I understand the very, very, very passionate feelings about the Ben Solo ending, and I get why people say it's cynical, and I'm not taking that away from anybody. But from 1977, that was explicitly told to I think us, and this is what I gathered is like that's a win. That's something that when you count them less than you can count them on two hands the amount of people that have crossed over into that immortality and he was able to do that and i see that in jane is that Mm -hmm. that's why jane jane goes in battle she fulfills that criteria even if it wasn't even if she succumbed there before i believe it's destiny the cosmic being that can grant the wish um Uh, you think it's eternity right eternity eternity you're right eternity destiny ego Uh, uh, there's so many songs yeah yeah Yeah, it's a bunch of these different beings in marvel yeah before before this being but her battle was throughout her battle was cancer that was the warrior's way that was your thing and all of the mighty thor stuff was just on top of that which again is so star wars the battle happens often before the battle the battle was getting out of the hospital bed that's where you secured your place in valhalla the battle was knowing how to defeat maul at the campfire it wasn't actually cutting him down yeah and you 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 said it really well the the authenticity right uh she's she's coded as a hero before mighty thor right it, it, there's that really explicit line of thor went on to do what he needed to do to help people and so did Jane and it shows all the books she's published on better understanding our universe. Uh, but when she's coming towards her end, and I agree with you, it's it's this kind of a laundry list of the, the accomplishments to pass into immortality. It's it's being there for other people. Uh, it is uh, dying in defense of something. Uh, but it's also just always authenticity, right? Luke's speech about exactly who he is on crate and exactly what's going to happen. The rebellion is reborn. The war is just beginning and I will not be the last Jedi. Total certainty and authenticity. O- Obi-Wan's, you know, original line of if you strike me down, I should become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. Everybody who passes in the force, that smile from Ben, they're centered that they know who they are and that they are making the correct choice to a point where it's glowing bliss in your soul mm-hmm. and 
Yeah, I've had that every once in a while. I hope most people have when you're like, you've been conflicted about something and you find that choice that is clearly, obviously right. It's clearly, obviously you. And it feels so damn good. And yeah. I feel like that's what's going on with Jedi. And that's what's going on with, with Jane in her final moments. Yeah, that, and I love that that is it. The scene is played with warmth. The, the That Heimdall gets to greet her and that, you know, there's that connection there of people being interlinked. Like Jane, you, like they don't say this in dialogue, but it's like, you just helped defend my son. Heimdall's been hanging over the film uh, throughout mm-hmm. since he died in Infinity War. And now he's the one that gets to greet her there. He's always been this gatekeeper. Now his son has inherited the role and he's now maintaining a different gate. And mm. there's been some of that in Star Wars, not to go too far into off screen, Although we love that stuff, but like, because, you know, just because the crossover is probably a little bit lesser, but something like Shadow of the Sith, like where we got some ghost Anakin Skywalker who mm-hmm. was now serving as this messenger gatekeeper warning, like something is happening, my son, and I need you to know I'm flickering in and out like they can still have an active role. You know, you guys always say on Force Center, as you should. You, uh, Ken and Jennifer, have always said speculate responsibly. <laughs> so I, it's like, of course, I would love more Jane Thor. Of course, I love more Heimdall. Who knows if they'll ever tell a Valhalla story. Um, but moving into this in terms of how we think a Taika Star Wars not will be. We don't need to sit here and pitch Taika mm-hmm. Star Wars movies that won't happen. <laughs> but having said all this about Love and Thunder, uh, well, first of all, if you have anything else about it specifically, please. The, the only other big theme to me is I, I, it, I think it's important to me that Star Wars is aware that it's mythic storytelling. You know, especially the way that Lucas started it with the storybook opening. There's a lot of stuff in Star Wars about, you know, unreliable narrators and about but but this is a story and then other versions of it are you know people who listen to star wars podcasts know that there's a lot about star wars that is aware that it's a, a mythic story mm-hmm. and i thought that was one of, one of the other great things about thor love and thunder that was very consciously constructed i think some people who didn't enjoy the film thought it had a lot of recaps and like yes there was a function of reminding people of the past events but it starts with the voiceover of korg telling a story we see a moment where axel uh, is telling the kids a story about thor to comfort them the actual phrase another classic thor adventure comes up again and again where thor is a character self-mythologizes to cope there's so much in the film that is reminding us uh, that this is a story being told on multiple levels you're sitting in a movie Mm -hmm. theater uh this is an adaptation of a comic book based on a character from actual myth by the time you're sitting in this theater you're at least three levels deep in actual myth and story so when i was watching the film and kind of realized how purposeful the constant reminder from all of these characters of feeling the story that that it's a myth being told on multiple layers. It invited me to think about why do we tell stories? What is important about them? Oh, this mm. is a story about empowering. This is a story in which the story in the story, the younger generation learns to not just look up to the heroes, but to become their heroes. Why do we tell stories so we can make heroic choices so we cannot just go that's cool that thor and jane made good choices anyway back to my garbage life but to try to be inspired by those choices and i think that's extremely star wars of it's it's didactic it wants to teach you and give you strength and inspiration to be a the best version of yourself. Absolutely. And for there to be witnesses, it's it, the, this, the, I love what you said there about uh, Thor self mythologizing. Like it's another Thor adventure. He has relegated the guardians to sidekicks. <laughs> he has like, he has made it all his thing. The welcome to the jungle opening is intentionally comedically blocked and like action directed and everything feels very heightened. The martial arts, double leg kick <laughs> to 
block <laughs> both things and destroying their castle by accident. Like all of that is there because he's buying into the surface level of Thor to cope. Um, mm-hmm. It's not the same as Luke dealing with his own legend, but it is them dealing with their own legends. But at the end, it's, oh, they need to see me act on my best instinct. Who is they? Over here, the resistance. Over here, it's the children. They need to see that I have found myself because Thor has been, and some of this is real world. And, you know, we're here, we're discussing story. We're not litigating productions, but there is a difference between what Brana and Alan Taylor were doing um, versus what Taika is doing versus what the Russos are doing. Their Thors have been a little bit tonally inconsistent because it's of their lenses as directors and storytellers, but also because he by coincidence or just by design has been landing on a I don't know who I am since the end of that first one. The first one was Bifrost is broken. I don't know if I can have this relationship. Second one is I don't know if I can be king. Third one is, well, I guess maybe I can lead a nomadic people because Asgard is a is a people, not a place. And then Infinity War, end game, end game ends. I still don't know who I am. I think this was the one that finally solidified it. And what Thor realized that he is, is a caregiver. And Mm -hmm. and what he realized what he was is somebody that could be a valuable symbol and that being a symbol is okay. Whereas his fellow Avengers, for the most part, have been fairly comfortable with that. Tony Stark obviously was extremely comfortable with that. (laughs) Ant-Man has become comfortable with that, as we've seen. Even Hulk, to a certain degree, as he's synthesized his identity, um, the symbolism there of Banner spending time to create this Hulk that can dab and eat breakfast in public and everything. Thor never reached that point of synthesis until now. Yeah, and I think I think Winter Soldier and the Falcon is is uh, mm-hmm. is Sam Wilson being aware? I will be a symbol. Uh, yeah, my choices will make me a symbol. So they got to be my choices. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. am I imbuing this with? And that's why I love at the end. Like if we're talking about that symbolism, Sam is a great, great thing to bring up. And I, I need to rewatch that show because it was I loved it. Um, what does the shield mean now that I'm carrying it instead of Steve? And mm-hmm. then here it's. What do Stormbreaker and Mjolnir mean now that one of them is being carried by a little girl and (laughs) and the way that it is now customized and decked out and has colorful, funny, uh, quirky little markings of joy on it now. Yeah, it's it, it went from this burden of the right of a king, the weapon of a king forged in the heart of a dying star to being this crutch to being shattered reformed by jane's strength and by their love and then crystallized with stickers and hearts and drawings. <laughs> uh, yeah it's, it's beautiful it's it's so yeah it's it's so embracing of the silly so we start to wind down in this conversation which we could again we could do a five-hour version and you know maybe one day we will throw us some <laughs> money throw us some money or something i don't know um but the the idea that this challenged people in terms of creatively you know we've talked about all these parallels and there's much more we could talk about in terms of um the way that it embraces weird the way that it embraces running gags we didn't even talk about screaming goats we didn't talk about korg being destroyed and being just a face uh for some of the film all of that if incorporated into something like star wars if we cranked it above the scout troopers could be challenging so where are you at now with taika being on the slate currently writing his film saying that it's coming up i think taika's very cheeky in the media i don't claim to know anything but i if he's like oh i'm still cracking it he's further along than cracking it (laughs) this guy's work rate is insane he has one of the most prolific in a short amount of time careers that we witnessed 
how important is it to you and what is the place of of the challenge should this be challenging people should star wars should star wars take the swings like i think andor kind of did where it's like we know this is going to be for less of you but we need that for the purposes of the buffet of mm-hmm. the creativity of the palette yeah i'm excited about taika waititi making a star wars uh film i think we're in such a weird place in in uh the business of what gets released in a theater what gets released on streaming and you know and, and things absolutely matter right now because they make money or they drive subscriptions and that dictates what other things get made so it does matter but at the same time you know, like the, these are works of art that are legacy works of art and mm. you know what what is their their long shelf life going to be so i think for myself when i'm in a negative mood i'm like oh boy i'll probably like taika waititi's movie I think, you know, when Kathleen Kenny has had that quote about, you know, the guardrails of Star Wars, I think they're everything thematic that you and I are are talking about. How do you respond to loss? That what is the power of connection? What is the responsibility to others uh, that we have? If you have power, you have responsibility to use it. All those things. I think those are the guardrails that she's talking about. And Taika Waititi is clearly like, I agree <laughs> and understand with every bone in my body. If souls have bones, they understand like he's on the same page about the ideas. But he's also an an artist with a specific voice and a specific tone. And some of that tone includes, like we talked about at the top, wacky comedy that not a lot of people are, are, not everybody's going to like. I think there's a tenacity to his comedy where sometimes you can almost feel bludgeoned by it. And there, mm. there are some, as much as I love uh, Thor, Love and Thunder, there's some jokes that don't work for me because I can kind of feel them coming almost rhythmically of like, uh, there, there's like a comedy metronome mm. in the audience's body. And it's like, it's been too long. So we're about to be whacked in the head with a scream or something, you know, or yeah. somebody's going to trip right now. Like not every beat of comedy works for me, even though I think almost every beat is meaningful. But I'm also aware that it's that tenacity of a comedy. that's mm-hmm. just not going to be for a lot of people. So when I'm negative, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. It's going to, people are going to be upset with it. it he, he's it, it's there's also a matter of he's been around for a while and his tone has been around for a while. So it's not fresh. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have all these negatives, but I actually think his film would be great and interesting. And I personally want it made and I want to be able to take kind of a, a long view of even if in this moment there is some gnashing of teeth from from some people about it. This film's going to exist for years and years and years, most likely. And maybe it'll mm-hmm. be the film that somebody needs uh, to see someday. Uh, and I, I try to be sure to look at things that way, as well as the the game of right now. And what are people's tastes right now? What are the financial needs of the industry right now? But also, what is the longevity of the film? And I think Taika Waititi is going to make a film that's that's going to last. Yeah, I think that, you know, there's that speech that John Baptiste gave recently um, at the Grammys, I believe, where he talked about art sort of it doesn't function like here it is do you respond to it or not sometimes it exists and it has its own compass and it will find who needs it in the moment that they Mm. need it and in the same way that you know i was a prequels kid and it took a while for me to say hey hey we're celebrating this is happening this is (laughs) this is happening right now and i I want that for the sequel kids dear god i want it for the sequel kids and I, (laughs) i cannot wait for the i can't wait for some kid in 10 years to tell me all of the Ray insights that they've been sitting on. That way I can high five them and say, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> and I think that, yeah, like to your point, Taika, he could make the thing that makes our jobs and lives and hobbies <laughs> and like bar conversations a little bit more difficult. But the fact that he is, has, there's a fearlessness in the relentlessness of his comedy in the, mm-hmm. in the, 
yeah, I'm going to do the screaming goats gag and I'm going to do it repeatedly and I'm going to do it at, at moments of triumph. Like it mm-hmm. happens when they get saved. Um, <laughs> I think that's when when Sweet Child of Mine kicks in or maybe it's Paradise. Yeah. City. When they crash through into Omnipotent City, like it's still a scream. It's still Cork. Like he's not afraid to do that because he's not afraid of what you brought up at the beginning. He's not afraid of having the wobbly leg on his table. And I think that that's that's an important it's an equal but entirely different fearlessness to what we're seeing with Tony Gilroy. Yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. It's fearless. And I think. I think what's it's fearless because some people are going to like it. And in particular, the, the phrase that just popped in my head is Taika Waititi is the kind of director who wants to tug on Darth Vader's cape, right? He wants to use comedy to sort of puncture just power and badassery. And like, I, I, I love Vader and, and I love, I personally love Vader as, as a power fantasy, not, not as a, I want to wield that power, but I love Vader. Like I love Michael Myers, like a, like a horror mm-hmm. villain of like, this is what, this is what it looks like when unchecked evil power Rome. So I'm not I'm not saying don't like Vader, don't have action figures, don't think he's cool, don't think he's badass. But I think sometimes when people don't like comedy in Star Wars, it's because they just want to sit in. Oh, that was awesome. That character is so powerful. This moment so powerful. And Taika Waititi seems to feel that and then go, yep, agreed. And I need to add a fart noise because it mm-hmm. can't just sit as that. I need to challenge it, which some people don't like, but is fearless, right? Mm-hmm. To sort of tug on the cape of, of Vader's badassery. Like the moment that Vader is taking himself the most seriously, the moment the audience is taking Vader the most seriously, he's going to yank on his cape. And that is both what makes it great and also why a large chunk of people might not like it at all. Yeah. And he, he, I think, is that person that will say, I have this, like, like illustrated with the children designing the monster stuff. Like, I have this idea but I need to throw something else in there. And even if these spices clash a little, and even if it's a little off recipe, the belief that I have in the idea necessitates a little bit of left of center. You know, we're going, we're going a little Mm -hmm. bit this way. Experimentation. I, I, I think about things like the way that he's, I mean, what kind of put him on the map with what we do in the shadows, at least in the mainstream was vampires, but also this, they are these immortal creatures that are supposed to be horrifying and have had decades, 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 centuries of stories about these beings. And he was like, but what if real life? And it's, and we could speculate all day about what his star Wars movie would be. I have my ideas. I'm sure you have yours. And, but the thing that binds them is that it could be Taika Waititi presents the Mortis gods, (laughs) or it could be Taika Waititi presents for and Zuckus. And they would be, be approached, I think, with the equal amount of earnestness. And it reminds me of what he said in the Mandalorian season one gallery, which is a quote that's just been burned into my brain. They're talking about the beauty of the, I don't believe it, that is why you fail. And they're talking about Mm. the ethos of Star Wars. And Taika said, it doesn't take itself 100% seriously, but it does believe in itself Mm -hmm. about all of it from New Hope all the way to Andor, everything in between. The fact that something like Resistance and Andor can both be telling stories about fascism and one has Kaz and Niku doing slapstick and the other (laughs) one has uh, police murders and the prison industrial complex and all that. I think that what's interesting about him as a creator and why it excites me is that I don't see him saying, well, I'm doing this kind of Star Wars, therefore I must be X. I see him saying, I'm doing this kind of Star Wars 
and I would criticize it the same way and I would approach it the same way. And, you know, I've always said, oh, I would love to see a Taika movie that was just two guys on a lower level of Coruscant one night. It could be him and Reese Darby and they're trying to get to a higher level and, you know, some something really, 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 really tiny. But at the same time, I joke, but what if it was like Taika Waititi's The Bendu? What is that guy doing? <laughs> like, what is the... Uh, especially if you get Tom Baker back, the oh, Tom Baker yeah. will make sense some weird comedy oh yeah tom baker yeah that's a team yeah yeah what what fallibility can he find in anything he's he's obsessed with that he found it in this this indictment of the radicalization of youth and jojo he he's found it um of course he's not the only creative mind uh behind our flag means death but he found that in pirates of like well why are we doing this what is the familial bond between a pirate crew he found that in vampires and he found it in in star wars and it's important to note yes he did the biker scout thing i agree with you it probably is the best example of a joke we can't go further with um i can't <laughs> i can't imagine anyone having the i have a take on stormtroopers missing um <laughs> after that but that episode is also grogu protecting them from the flames that episode is also ig convincing din to unmask so he can heal him it's it's all the tenderness and i think that yeah those moments were there in thor love and thunder too I, you know i know i was saying like he can't resist adding the comedy in it, but i feel like to the to the overall stew not necessarily scene by scene you know if you you could cut a trailer of thor love and thunder that's just brutal like the heaviest indie award academy awards bait film you've ever seen right because the scenes that do need to have that weight he just lets them have that weight then he often cuts quite quickly to comedy but that weight would be there i feel like my without you know getting into here's here's my pitch for the movie taika waititi should do i think the crucial thing to me is just totally new characters hopefully in a new environment or situation mm -hmm. and i think that's what's so vital to star wars audiences being open to the star wars buffet <laughs> we all talk about of having really ingredients i think that's one of the things that's succeeding about andor right i think if we saw han solo's socks <laughs> and watched him just uh, you know sort of uh schlep around depressed unwilling to take action for you know going full hours without him making a choice or a decision I think there might be more resistance to it. I think it's because most of these characters are new. That is one of the many things that are allowing people to kind of open their hearts and be really excited about very different Star Wars is that the characters are new. Yeah. And I and think that, that would go a long way if it's like, here's Taika's slightly wilder, way pulpy, way comedic take on Star Wars. And it's way over here with this gang of weirdos you never met and might never meet again. It's just set in the Star Wars galaxy. Mm -hmm. I think that might help people go, eh, not for me. And then the people who love it will just love the hell out of it. Yeah, that'll be their thing in the same way that people have made. You know, you got people that are like, I am all about Rogue One. I'm all about the higher public. I'm all about Clone Wars. It has the opportunity to do that. And I think that we are in a place now where I think conversations like the one we just had, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I will a little bit. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that the conversations we just had are the ones that I would love to see more of and encourage and be part of. If you heard this and this resonated with you, let us know. Like, Let's talk about the excitement of the fact that there will be a buffet. I get great personal satisfaction out of knowing that this Andor season had tails dropped in the middle of it 
and will be followed by Bad Batch season two, which will be followed by Vision season two, which will be followed by Mandalorian in the same year as Ahsoka and Acolyte. I (laughs) am... I almost feel like we need, deserve, and can learn from the tonal whiplash that we're about to experience. Mm-hmm. And and I think that that's, it's almost at a place where almost musically, I mean, I'm not a musician, but but you know, tra- when you track your favorite bands and everything, and you get to that album of theirs where you're like, like I'm a big My Chemical Romance fan, and I, and my favorite album of all time is The Black Parade. Then they follow it up with Danger Days, which is way more of a pop punky, way more light, way more colorful. And I remember back then thinking, oh my goodness, this is not my somber <laughs> emo concept uh, epic tale and everything. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, oh, but you need to. But you need to. It's so necessary. And so that's what excites me. So, Joseph, I feel like we've covered everything, but also there's so much more, but also (laughs) we both have schedules. So any closing thoughts about Taika Star Wars, these connections, our experiences or anything else that we've discussed? Uh, No, I think I have said uh, plenty. Uh, I'm going to wrap up and uh, listen to some Guns N' Roses while I finish my work. Yes, I think that is absolutely necessary. Uh, Will Guns N' Roses ever make it into Star Wars? Probably not. But I will say Ludwig Göransson can rock a guitar solo. So if he ever wants to homage (laughs) it, that would be that would be the time to do it. So, Joseph, let everybody know where they can find you. You obsessed for center your shorts everything you've got going on yeah you can find me on twitter instagram tiktok is at joseph scrimshaw you can search for anywhere where you can get podcasts uh for our star wars podcast for center that i do with ken knapsack and jennifer landa and then i've been uh, making some more uh comedy sketches and short films you can find them on my youtube channel if you go to youtube and just uh, search for joseph scrimshaw the most recent one is one called peace fight and it is about a desperate quest for a relaxing afternoon mixed horror and comedy so uh revealing my bias there towards uh, creators like Taika Waititi who like to uh, mix up some genres a little bit. So if you want to check that out, you can go to YouTube. And if you want to help me make some more films, you can check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash Joseph Scrimshaw. Yes, and all of those things for Joseph's projects are going to be linked down in the description below. As for me and this show, you can find me personally, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at that Alden Diaz, T-H-A-T-A-L-D-E-N-D-I-A-Z. Octo Radio Star Wars Podcast is on all your platforms. If you're listening on Apple and Spotify and you want to leave stars and reviews, it would be greatly appreciated appreciated as we battle the necrosword of the algorithm god <laughs> the algorithm butcher um who comes for <laughs> us all uh help us out there that'd be great a-h-c-h-t-o radio wherever you get your podcasts and that's also across all the socials our rebels rewatch is going to be coming back have some interviews banked for high republic that i can't wait to release things are in full swing and our stuff coming up a couple folks from lucasfilm are going to be coming on the show some more stuff exciting there and then i also that guy ken knapsack keeps coming up i also work <laughs> with ken knapsack over on Casterly Talk, where I'm co-host over there, and we do all of our coverage on the World of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones, House of the Dragon, as well as now Tolkien. Rings of Power is done. Expect more coverage there as we visit the Jackson films. And I finally bullied Ken hard enough to let me cover Willow on Casterly <laughs> Talk. So we will be talking about the new Willow series there and anything else. Uh, I recently wrote for Star Trek.com. Hopefully going to be doing a little bit more of that soon. More on that on my socials. But for right now, for me, for Joseph, For love and thunder, we will catch you next time. Punch it, Chewie!